This is the Ag Queen Podcast. This podcast explores the agriculture industry with the movers and shakers of those shaping it. Here's your host, Lori Boyer. Welcome to today's show, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I am talking today with Sarah Lancaster. She is an assistant professor and extension specialist at Kansas State University. Our topic is post-harvest weed control, and we'll get into that specifically here in a few moments. But Sarah, first off, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, if you will. Sure, Lori. So I have been here at K-State for about three years. Um, I am originally a farm kid from just west of St. Louis, Missouri, went to school at Mizzou, go Tigers, and North Carolina State and Texas A&M. So I've kind of traveled around a little bit. So happy to be here, though. Yeah, thank you. And what made you decide to kind of get more into the agronomy side of extension? A couple of things. My family farm is pretty typical for the area. It's got crops and cattle. But I always sort of gravitated more to the crop side. I remember uh, being a kid and riding in the combine with my dad and quizzing him about, you know, the escapes in the field at harvest. And I always tease my dad that it's his fault that I'm a weed scientist because I remember one year, this is pre-Roundup Ready, so I'm dating myself a little bit here, but pre-Roundup Ready soybeans, he had his soybeans got too tall to spray and we pulled shatter cane out of the this one particular soybean field for like days. It was awful. But anyway. Very cool. All right. Well, as we uh, get to our topic here today and what you specialize in, let's just start off with this question here, Sarah. What are the benefits of post-harvest wheat control? Yeah, that's a good question, Lori. So um, a lot of times when I talk about post-harvest wheat control, I'm talking about being in Kansas, I'm talking about Um, controlling weeds after wheat harvest in the summer, right? That's a particular challenge that's kind of unique to to the wheat producing regions of Kansas, where we have these long fallow periods after we harvest our wheat. But as we think more about the corn and soybean rotations that we might see across much of the corn belt, you know, there are a lot of benefits to thinking about weed management after harvest, because especially if you have an early harvest, you can still have lots of time for some of our problematic weed species to grow and and continue to produce seeds even after they've been kind of chopped off with the combine. Um, Other things to think about, you know, a lot of times we're thinking about winter annual species when we talk about uh, weed management after corn and soybean harvest. And so, you know, even though those weeds are not directly competing with the crops, they're still you know, maybe utilizing soil moisture that the crops would need. You know, we've been in kind of a drought situation in a lot of places in 2022. And so, you know, thinking about how can we retain as much of that soil moisture as possible. Some of those winter annuals we figured out are alternative hosts for diseases and other pests. So, you know, there's lots of reasons to do it. It sort of depends on the operation in question. And the first place to start with deciding what we're going to do with post-harvest weed control is scouting, right? Scouting is the key. You know, a lot of folks maybe pay someone else to scout their fields or maybe aren't doing maybe quite the job they should, but scouting is so important. Yeah. And so what is the best way to scout for those weeds in your fields? Getting a good representative look at the field is important. I kind of joke sometimes when I'm giving extension presentations, Lori, that driving by, slowing from 60 to 40 as you drive by on the county blacktop is not scouting. Um, You have to actually put footprints in the field. 
Some other things to think about, though, you know, we're talking about kind of harvest things. Honestly, sitting in the combine at harvest is a great time to see mm. where you had misses in your weed control program. I know there's a lot of things going on in the cab of that combine, but, you know, if you can find ways to make notes of, of where you see those big escapes, that can be beneficial for, for scouting purposes. And the other thing that is becoming more popular the other thing that's becoming more popular, Lori, for scouting would be using UAVs or drones, right, to gather some of those images um, and and use imagery to help us with our be more efficient with our scouting. That's great advice, actually. At what threshold does a grower need to decide whether or not to put the money and, of course, how much money into weed control? You know, that's another one of those management decisions. It's going to ma- vary a little bit from farm to farm. Um, but a lot of it's going to depend on the value of the crop and how competitive that weed is. You know, mm. in Kansas, we struggle a lot with a weed called Palmer amaranth, which in a lot of the corn belts, it would be kind of like the cousin to water hemp. And so, you know, weeds like that, that have the potential to produce such large numbers of seeds and weeds like that, that we know have a high probability of being herbicide resistant. The threshold for those species is going to be really low right? When you're going to pull the trigger on weed control. But if you have something that is maybe less competitive, produces less seed, less likely to come back next year, you're going to have a little higher threshold there. It depends a lot, you know, on the weed species and the value of the crop. Where do we begin in creating a weed management plan? So that's a good question. You already talked about step one, right? You talked about scouting. So knowing what you have is is really the first step. Then as you think about putting those plans, those pieces of the the puzzle together, right? What tools are we going to pull out of our weed management tool belt? Always think about how are you going to start clean? So here in Kansas, a lot of our farmers utilize no-till. I know in other places, you know, reduced tillage is is popular. So, you know, if you're not going to use tillage to kind of wipe the slate clean before you plant, so to speak, um, you need to think about what herbicides are you going to use to to burn down or to control any weeds that are present. And then the second piece there is how are you going to stay clean? So what residual herbicides are you going to use? When I talk to farmers here in Kansas about kind of weed management plants in general, I talk a lot about the fact that the best place to spend your weed management dollar is in that residual herbicide application at planting. Okay. Because setting that foundation is super critical, especially when you think about the fact that Again, with our most problematic weeds, the herbicide resistance that we see is primarily to post-emergence herbicides, or yeah, post-emergence herbicides. And so if we can keep those weeds from ever emerging, we're not going to have that selection pressure to those post-emergence herbicides. So that residual piece at planting is, is, is step number two. And then step number three is going to be to think about how are you going to manage anything that comes through that residual herbicide. Okay, so that's step number three. The other thing to remember is that those decisions that are kind of unique to weed management are taking place in the context of a cropping system where you're going to be able to do things to help suppress weeds. So optimizing planting dates, thinking about in soybeans, narrower row spacings, using proper fertility, thinking about non-chemical control options. So Weed management is actually a really good reason for farmers to use cover crops. 
Um, we know that cover crops that, that create a lot of biomass, things like cereal rye, can do a good job of suppressing some of the weeds that we really struggle with. So, you know, taking your, your agronomic practices into consideration as, as weed management tools is important also. And Sarah, one of the questions I was going to ask you next is, do we need to consider timing? And you just mentioned timing. Can you elaborate just a little bit more on that and what your suggestions are for timing? Yeah, so as we think about that weed management plan and how are we going to manage escapes from that residual herbicide application at planting, it's important to think about timing in terms of crop. It's important to think about timing in terms of weed height. Um, and so, you know, really, if you look at most herbicide labels, we want uh, weeds that are four inches tall or less. I think okay. if I were to talk about, you know, timing for weed control, that's probably the most important thing to remember is just smaller weeds are going to be easier to control. The other timing piece to think about is, is timing relative to crop growth stage, right? So a lot of products we cannot spray after crops have started to flower um, or begin those reproductive phases because we don't want to do anything that's going to affect the yield potential of the crop. So I'm thinking about weed size and crop growth stage, I think are probably the two most important things related to timing for those post-emergence herbicide applications. Is temperature a factor that we need to take into consideration? It absolutely is. So the best time to kill a weed, other than before you see it, that's the bumper sticker I should probably make, but the best time to kill a weed that's already emerged is when it's actively growing right? And so plants have kind of a comfort zone where they're going to grow best, where the temperature is right for all the enzymes in the plant to work at maximum efficiency. And so if you get below that or above that, you start to have, have problems to see reduction in control because that herbicide is not moving through the plant well, or maybe the process that is targeted by the herbicide isn't working fast enough. Um, to really have a good effective herbicide application. It's ironic that you asked that question because before we started this conversation, Lori, I was working on a slide set to talk about drought conditions, right? So a lot of times we think about high temperature, we think about dry weather kind of occurring together, um, at least in this my part of the world. So those two things definitely play together and they can make weed management really, really challenging because as plants start to become hotter, as plants are exposed to hotter temperatures and drier conditions, they change. They slow down those metabolic processes. The cuticle gets thicker so the plant can conserve water. And we really struggle to get enough herbicide into the plant and get it where it needs to go. And then going back to weed size, and you've mentioned it a couple times, weed height. And we talked about it with regard to timing and with regard even to temperature. But what about using that weed height in determining how much product to use? How do we do that? Yeah, that's an important thing for a, a farmer, or a applicator, or a consultant to think about, Lori, because obviously the bigger the weed, the more herbicide it's going to take to control it. So, you know, you have a, a window, right, on those herbicide labels um, where we can choose, choose a herbicide rate within a given range for those post-emergence products. It's often based on weed size, weed density. If you have a lot of weeds crammed in close together, you tend to have a more challenge controlling them. So choosing something towards the higher end of that range is going to be necessary to control those larger weeds. You know, it 
those rates obviously vary from product to product, right? Um, if you're thinking about glyphosate or Roundup, the rate is going to be different than if you're thinking about a herbicide like 2,4-D or Select or something like that. How should we determine what products we're going to use? Yeah, so... <clears throat> Me and my job as an extension specialist, I get questions a lot of times. Hey, what should this farmer spray? And I almost always have to go back and ask for more information about what are the weeds that you're trying to control? How big are the weeds and how big is the crop? Those are the three things that we have to think about when we think about the three primary things we need to think about when selecting products. Other things to think about would be the potential for off-target movement or runoff, think anything that might affect neighboring plants. So, you know, farmers can work with their neighbors or there are actually websites set up to help identify sensitive crops and, and honeybee hives and things of that nature. So, you know, you have your agronomic factors to consider, but you also need to consider those sort of social and environmental factors of, of just being a good neighbor and being a good steward of our, our tools for weed management. Now, I'm not exactly sure where this question falls in here because I have not heard of this term, but I'm going to go ahead and ask you, can you talk to me more about multiple effective sites of action? Now, when I was doing a little research for this interview, I came across that. So I'm not exactly sure what that means. Can you elaborate on that for us? Sure. So human nature is to try to categorize things, right? So we can explain them better and, and group like things together. So as weed scientists, we group herbicides by their site of action, okay? And the site of action is just where that herbicide works in the plant. So it's usually a, a specific enzyme or some specific process within the plant that the herbicide interferes with. So as we began to enter the era of herbicide-resistant weeds, weed scientists really promoted the idea of utilizing multiple effective herbicide sites of action within a single application as a good tool for weed management. Because the thinking would be then that if herbicide A, let's say if glyphosate is no longer effective on the weed, then dicamba would still be effective on the weed. Okay, so to take an example, maybe from, you know, Roundup Ready corn or a extend soybean type of situation. So using those multiple effective sites of action is important, even for our residual herbicides. Um, I've kind of mined through some of my data sets here. There's some other published literature that says that if you have a pre-emergence herbicide application, you're going to get better results when you have two or three herbicides in there compared to one. Thank you for explaining that. I appreciate that. Sarah, I think a question that any grower would ask is, how do we optimize these chemical applications that we're putting so much time and money into? Yeah, so that's another one of those situations where it's going to depend a little bit on the operation and the environmental conditions. But things that farmers need to look at, I would say, you know, after we think about product selection and application timing, check out your sprayer and check out your equipment and make sure that you have everything in good working order, including those tips. Uh, one of the things that I spent a lot of time in extension programming on last year was just this idea of checking your tips and making sure your sprayer is properly calibrated because you don't want to spend all this money on chemical and then have something that you could have easily controlled be the cause of a herbicide failure. So yeah, product selection, application timing, good equipment, and then just reading the label, right? Reading that product label, because that's going to tell you what is the best spray volume. 
a lot of times with our post-emergence applications, there's a, a big temptation for a lot of reasons for guys to try to apply at lower spray volumes. So maybe like 10 gallons per acre instead of 15, for example. But when you cut back that spray volume, you actually are, are reducing coverage. And for some products, that's really, really important. And the other thing that your herbicide label is going to tell you is what adjuvants to use. So a lot of our post-emergence products need some additional chemicals in the mix to help maybe improve the, the spreading of that herbicide across the surface of the leaf or to help solubilize the, the leaf cuticle to help the herbicide get in, maybe to change the pH of the leaf surface. So there's lots of things going on there, but the labels are, are in general very specific about what adjuvants can and can't be used with a particular herbicide in order to maximize weed control, but also to prevent crop injury. So those would be the things I would think about for optimization. Sarah, can weeds mutate or become immune to these treatments? This is always a fun question for weed scientists to answer. When we talk about herbicide resistance, or quite frankly, resistance to any type of management practice, it's not so much a genetic mutation that is caused by the herbicide or by the weed management practice. What you're doing is basically looking at natural selection on a very intense scale. So when we think about, for example, glyphosate resistance, there are plants that exist in the population that are just inherently less sensitive to that herbicide. And when we kill out all the ones that are sensitive to the herbicide, all you're left with is the, the non-sensitive. And so it's a selection process. Actually, the same thing happens if you look at, for example, in, in lawns. Mowing height, the dandelion is one of the, the awesome examples of that, right? It, it grows kind of prostrate. You can select for dandelions that have a really super flat or, or goosegrass, really super flat prostrate growth habit in that yard. It's just selection. It's not mutation. You're not changing the DNA. You're just changing which plants survive. What about overlapping residuals? What is your take on that? They're a good insurance policy. You know, one of the pieces of pushback I get on overlapping residual herbicides from farmers here in Kansas, and this is true across much of the Corn Belt, is that a lot of times it's starting to, to get dry, right, when we're putting on those post-emergence herbicide applications. And so those overlapping residuals might not get activated properly or they may not get incorporated into the soil where we need them to go. Um, is a better way to say that instead of saying oh. activation. Yeah. So they might not get incorporated properly. And so, you know, I get pushback, right? Why am I going to spend money on something that may or may not work? And so I think you have to look carefully at what other management practices you're doing. My group has spent some time looking at interactions with soybean row spacing and layered residual herbicides. And what we find is that if we have a, a good residual program, and we have conditions where those soybeans get up and grow quickly and canopy fast, then we don't see a lot of economic benefit of that layered residual herbicide or that overlapping residual herbicide. But let's say you have a slower growing crop. Let's say you have a crop that is, you know, maybe had some hail damage or something like that. Then when you need that, that greater period of activity from the residuals, then is when they really pay off. Sarah, when it comes to any additional challenges that I haven't asked about, is there anything else to talk about here today and what farming practices? I think in general, Lori, the number one question that I get is how do I, how do farmers on Kansas control herbicide resistant Palmer, Palmer amaranth or kochia in crops like grain sorghum where we don't have a lot of good post-emergence herbicide options? 
So I think as thinking about how do I translate that into something that's helpful for a large audience, you know, one of the pieces of advice that I have to give those folks is, is that that start clean piece is really important and making sure that you have no weeds present when you plant and that you're using good residual herbicides so that you don't rely on post-emergence herbicides. One problem that I think, a couple of things that I think, you know, looking, if I had a crystal ball, I would say might be more important going forward. One would be the development of resistance to residual herbicides. So there's a couple of research groups across the country that have identified a resistance to esmetolachlor, which is the active ingredient in a dual, right? So dual is in a group of herbicides that we use on almost every crop, okay? So if we were to develop resistance to those products, that would drastically change how we need to do business in terms of weed management. I think the other thing that is going to force us to change the way we think about weed management is kind of the evolution of regulation around herbicides. I'm not sure how many farmers have paid a lot of attention, but here in Kansas last winter, we had our first sort of interaction with the enforcement of the Endangered Species Act on herbicide Mm -hmm. labels. And so we had a group of counties that there were some problems with with the, the, the data package that got sent to the EPA. And so they were excluded from being able to use enlist herbicide on their soybeans. The Endangered Species Act is not going away, as well as, you know, just the fact that all herbicides are subject to regular registration reviews every 15 years. And as our society becomes more aware of what's going on in agriculture and more safety conscious, more um, you know, conservative about the risks they're willing to take in order to have an abundant food supply, we're going to have to change how we do business as, as farmers and make sure that you know, we are really walking the talk of being good stewards of the products that we have so that we can maintain good good relationships with the, the general public and keep the tools that we need. Anything else you wanted to mention today or bring up that I haven't asked about? I guess, you know, if we wanted to talk about the future again, you okay. know. If, yeah, let's go into that. What do you foresee there? You know, one other thing thinking about the future of weed control is that as we look at having more herbicide resistance and maybe fewer options because of of regulations, I think that we're going to have to kind of go back to the old playbook a little bit in terms of using non-chemical weed control options. And so, you know, there's a group of weed scientists that have started to look at some older technologies, things like, or technologies that we would normally consider to be for the organic market, right? But they might have application to help control escapes so that we can preserve our our chemistries a little bit longer. And so, you know, broad acre agriculture is never going to be herbicide free, at least not in my career. But I think we are going to see a return to some of these practices that are maybe kind of alternative types of practices that are non-chemical. And I think you know, the sooner we start to embrace that idea, the better off we're going to be for keeping our herbicides around. Once again, Sarah Lancaster, my guest here today. She is assistant professor and extension specialist with Kansas State University. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Ag Queen podcast with your host, Lori Boyer.